Hi, my name is John Schwartz, and we're back again today to hear some stories of wild animals and the people who love them in our podcast series, Tales of Transformation, The Magic Between Humans and Wild Animals. And with me once again is our storyteller and tour guide, Dr. Susan Eyrick, founder and director of Earthfire Institute Wildlife Sanctuary, located near the Grand Teton Mountains. Susan, today you were going to tell a story about Runs Like the Wind. Yes, this is an exquisite story of, of hope and beauty. So Runs Like the Wind was a three-legged deer, and we named him Runs Like the Wind because he could. So a woman was driving down a highway, 80 miles an hour. Her husband was driving. She caught something out of the corner of her eye. And she thought it was a baby deer. And she asked her husband to stop and go back. And he did. And she got out. And there was a little fawn curled up by the side of the highway. And it had two broken front legs and a big bruise on its head. And obviously had been hit by a car and left by its mother, or the mother was killed too. She couldn't find the mother anywhere. And she was an emergency room nurse and gathered a little fawn up in her lap and helped stop some of the bleeding and took it immediately to a vet. And the vet did everything he could to set the legs. And she took him home and nursed him with incredible love and care. I mean, she would have to change the bandages on his legs constantly um, every couple of hours. And he grew up with uh, bonded to her dog also. And the vet left for a, a period of time, and she hadn't realized it, I think, but what happened was gangrene had set in, and they weren't able to save one of the legs, and he had to amputate one of the legs. When she found him, he still had his umbilical cord attached, so he was just a matter of a few days old, Max. And all that little deer ever knew was basically humans. He never knew what it was to have another deer for company, and pretty much he never knew what it was to have four legs. She realized that she couldn't keep him and looked around for places who would take him and no one wanted a three-legged deer. My immediate reaction was, of course I'll take a three-legged deer. But what's the difference between a three-legged and a four-legged deer? Um, if he needs a home. We took him. He was still young and was able to adjust very nicely. There are several things that really blew me away about this whole thing. The first was his adaptability. They were very, very bonded, this woman and this deer. And she would come for visits and take him for walks down in the um, woods where we live. We actually have a wildlife corridor full of life that's connected up to Grand Teton National Park and wilderness areas. It's very vibrant. But it also means there are wild animals there. And I was afraid to take him for walks because I was, he wasn't as bonded to me afraid you know, what would happen if I couldn't catch him. But she was confident still, so she would take him for walks, and I would go with her. 
And at one point, I brought a movie camera. And that little deer ran like the wind. He would race through the woods, over logs, around trees, and you couldn't tell that he had three legs. And that, to me, was one really important thing because so often you have someone say, well, what's the point of having an animal with three legs? You might as well put him down. But he adapted incredibly, loved movement, and the whole idea it brings up a whole other issue of um, when do you put an animal down and for what reason, for our own thinking. Um, if we amputate a leg on a human, do we want to be put down? Right. Uh, why would we put them down because they had three legs? Once we had a wolf to a vet who had to have a leg removed, and she said, well, you should put him down. What's a wolf with three legs? Mm. Same thing. That wolf did just fine. But it's our, our mentality, of our image of what a wild animal should be. Versus, in my mind, the fact that any living being, and wild animals in particular, have this passion to live, and it's not our business to take it away from them mm-hmm. because of our own image about a three-legged deer or a three-legged wolf. But that's an aside. It was so beautiful to watch him. But the other thing that made a permanent, lasting impression on me, well, two actually, one was it was a white-tailed deer, and a deer is sort of ordinary to our minds. We see them all the time, so what? They're killed to the side of the road. We shoot them, we eat them. There are lots of them. They eat our, our gardens. They're ordinary animals. Hmm. But in my mind, as I spend time with any of these animals, there's no such thing as an ordinary animal. Hmm. Every single one of them is a magical being in their self, just like there's no such thing as an ordinary human being. Every one of us carries within us seeds of individuality, creativity, uniqueness. And just because there's seven billion of us doesn't make that any the less true for each one of us. Mm-hmm. And just because there are lots and lots of deer doesn't make it any the less true for a deer. And as we spent time with him, I wrote a little essay on it. That was one of my favorite essays I ever wrote called The Beauty of a Deer. And the exquisiteness of his eyes those lovely, soft, liquid eyes and the long lashes and the markings on his face and the slender, 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 but powerful, delicate legs and the ears and the shadings. Just It's like any time you spend time with any one being, you start to admire all these different aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So he was just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's perhaps the biggest thing I learned from him is he was he never knew other deer so he adopted humans as his herd Mm -hmm. deer are herd animals they need to belong and so he belonged and he decided that's what what didn't decide that's what happened any whatever word you want to use And so whenever a human being came by to visit him, he would delicately come out from his shelter. First his little nose would peek out, and then he'd start hopping along and very gently arch his long, graceful neck up in his nose towards the person, saying, in effect, oh, who are you? Hmm. And the people would reach out slowly 
and begin to scratch him behind the ears, and he would begin to glow, and the people would begin to glow. It's as if he was emanating some kind of herd love that he would, and it made, so as people even just walked by, he would begin to, I bet you could measure it if you had a delicate enough physical measurement thing, he would begin to glow. And the people would begin to glow. And there was like this interaction between the two of them. And it made me think that this must be what it's like to be in a herd, mm. a giant herd heart. Mm. Um, and what we, what we could gain if we felt that and what we lose if we don't. Um, it was just amazing. Mm. It's interesting you talk about the herd heart. And uh, as, you, as you were talking about that, um, and you were, you were pointing out the, another thing you were, you were mentioning is the beauty of each individual being, regardless of whether they come from what we think of as a common animal or a common, you know. I always kind of get a kick out of that in a bemused sort of way that we as humans, we tend to value uniqueness or I haven't seen that kind of thing or that kind of being before. So we don't necessarily ha get too excited when we encounter what we might refer to as the, mo <laughs> the most successful species. So we don't get too <laughs> fired up about seagulls and crows and uh, deer uh, and uh, bees and ants, you know, they they have done great work at uh, creating a, a a a lot of space in our world. It's interesting that also these, I think, a lot of similarities there that they they find a strength in numbers path to success, uh, as do deer. And I wonder if if uh, in your in your work with uh, with runs like the wind and this this sense you had that runs like the wind was kind of transforming his experience of uh, of people as uh, as his uh, his makeup to look for hurting. I wonder if in in all of that you feel like there's that humans that the whole herd idea is something that humans also come to rather naturally am mm. i making any sense i mean does that is that herding mentality do you feel like it's a good bridge to uh to connection because yeah. there's a, co a cooperative essence of both of our species i guess i don't even know if it's a cooperative essence it's well, um a need to belong yeah herd essence perhaps would be a better way to put it no <laughs> <laughs> okay, then how would you put it? I need to belong. It's um, a herd essence is a more concrete, more sort of scientifically oriented way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't my experience of it. Mm -hmm. My experience of it was a profound need, hunger, yearning to belong. Mm -hmm. And to both um, receive it and to generate it. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
And so there's a receptivity from other people. You think that receptivity comes just from the energy itself? Is it a function of the fact that it runs like the wind is a deer and there there are things that we tell ourselves about deer as opposed to say Mm -mm. other animals but it's just the it's just the connection i think he spoke to a need to belong to us Mm -hmm. and what it feels like to have that kind of thing that it happened with one of our bison too the same process Mm -hmm. she we had two bison one passed away Bluebell is the name of the one who stayed with us. Rosebud was the one who passed away. Bluebell was trying to pick her up as she lay dying. And then she went into a pretty big funk. We are worried we might lose her. Mm. And then maybe six months later, we discovered that wherever we were, there was Bluebell. Mm. She had been an aggressive female and and uninterested in us. And suddenly, wherever we were, there was Bluebell. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's another story with um, longer mm. than this. Um, how she, how she changed and many st- stories about Bluebell, but it was the same fundamental thing. She didn't have a herd. What was remarkable about her was she was maybe twelve years old or so, and she herself, in need of a herd, reoriented herself. Mm. I mean. Mm-hmm. We, were, that's, we were the only thing around, and and she decided humans were now her herd. She did that herself out of her own need. Hmm. But it's the same thing. When people would come and visit Bluebell, if you look at the pictures of their faces, and I have them in my mind too, people mm-hmm. would start to glow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you think of what it might be like to um, be part of a buffalo heart herd. Mm-hmm. Right. Th- thundering together in unison, one great heart. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you touched on, I'm, if, I'm, if it's okay to switch gears just a mm. little bit, you touched on, you know, the the, uh, the story of Runs Like the Wind really has a lot of implications around uh, the right to live. Or, you know, you mentioned that uh, that there's a again in that kind of separation between how we we regard ourselves as human beings and how we regard animals. There's a a real uh, dissonant narrative that goes with those two things. I.e., we work overtime to keep people alive to the very very bitter end, uh, as opposed to animals where trying to keep them alive is just a cruelty. You you hear that mm. a lot. It, put them down not put them down is is cruel mm. and you mentioned that 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 would be a conventional wisdom for uh runs like the wind having been found on the side of the road as a baby with a mangled body mm-hmm. um what does that dissonance mean for you i mean i i kind of i kind of think it's just one of the byproducts of separating ourselves and our our hearts from the rest of the animal world but I wonder if if there's more to it than that for you. What is it? What is that we adopt these different narratives and we tell ourselves what is what is in a very masterful, knowledgeable tone? We tell ourselves what is okay for us and what is okay for them, and they're two entirely different things. And what do you 
What do you think that says about us? And, and do you think that's a narrative that we need to work towards changing? Yes. <laughs> we definitely need to turn, uh, change it. Um, I think you answered it when you said that what it says about us is that we have two different standards. Our life is important and others are not the same. They don't have, we don't recognize the passion to live. In my mind, everything has a passion to live. Mm-hmm. Be it a human, a dog, a wolf, or in its own way, I wouldn't use the word passion, but um, a tree. Mm-hmm. There's a life force that just wants to live in whatever form it's in. And not to recognize that impoverishes us. Mm. And with with myself, with the various experiences I've had with different animals, occasionally an animal won't want to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, that's a delicate discussion because you could say, how do you know that? Mm-hmm. And that's another whole discussion. But if there's any sense at all on my part that the animal is healthy and has vitality, I'm not going to put it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only time I would put an animal down is if they're in unbearable pain and there's no healing mm-hmm. to ease its suffering. But short of that, um, I've had too many experiences where I've been told to put an animal down and it healed mm-hmm. and often had a long life. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that really answers your question. Well, do you think that uh, as, you know, we talked earlier about this this whole idea of the, the disconnection that we have made with ourselves and wild animals and where there is a lack of a relationship or an empathy, a curiosity, a compassion towards other living things, um, there is a, a highway that leads straight to uh, saying things of them and thinking things of them that we wouldn't put on ourselves, like, oh, broken leg, put it down. And do you think that um, that it would be a natural outgrowth of people going into greater connection to, uh, to wild animals that it would, it would uh, evaporate that way of thinking and mm-hmm. that they might then bestow upon that same ethical or moral thinking on wild animals that that they give to themselves yeah it's not just ethical or moral it's as you as you feel connected you feel them yeah and you feel the life force in them and you just want to support it mm-hmm. whatever's going to happen will happen you don't try to fix things that are impossible but you want to support the life force mm-hmm. i think in a sense that's you know what was happening with apricot her life force was, was simply being supported, mm-hmm. and she took it. Sometimes mm-hmm. animals don't. Either it's too late or they don't want to or whatever reason, but very often they'll take it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Susan, for the conversation and for the story that reminds us of the beauty of life. Thank you, John, for making it possible. You're welcome. And... If you'd like more information, please go to earthfireinstitute.org. That's earthfireinstitute, one word, dot O-R-G.